This is Space Time, Series 23, Episode 120, for broadcast on the 11th of November, 2020. Coming up on Space Time, discovery of a Mars-sized rogue planet, celebrating 20 years of continuous human presence on the International Space Station, and Russia's new spy satellite cloaking technology. All that and more coming up on Space Time. Welcome to Space Time with Stuart Gary. Astronomers have detected a Mars-sized rogue planet travelling through interstellar space. The discovery, reported in the Astrophysical Journal Letters, represents the smallest rogue planet found so far and suggests that the galaxy may be teeming with similar gravitationally unbound worlds. Scientists have so far found more than 4,500 extrasolar planets, that is, planets orbiting stars other than the Sun. Although many of these exoplanets appear very different from planets in our solar system, they all have one thing in common, that is, they orbit a host star. However, theories of planetary formation and evolution predict the existence of free-floating or rogue planets, gravitationally unattached to any star. These planets are flying out from their host systems through some sort of gravitational perturbation. And a few years ago, scientists with the University of Warsaw provided the first evidence for the existence of one of these rogue planets. But because they're all alone in the cold darkness of space, far from stars and other planets, rogue planets are very difficult to find. Some exoplanets can be detected by their gravitational influence on their host star as they orbit around it, the so-called wobble method. Other exoplanets are occasionally detected as they pass in front of or transit their host star as seen from Earth, briefly blocking out some of the star's light. A third method involves gravitational microlensing, which results from Albert Einstein's general theory of relativity and demonstrates how mass bends the very fabric of space-time, in the process causing light to also bend. It means a massive foreground object, such as a star or galaxy, can act as a lens, bending and magnifying the light from a much smaller background object. The study's lead author, Prismic Roz, from the California Institute of Technology, says the same microlensing method can also occasionally detect free-floating rogue planets. He says the observer sees a brief brightening of the source star, signifying the passing of a background rogue planet. But it's very much a rare hit-and-miss affair. The chances of observing microlensing are extremely slim because all three key parts of the microlensing procedure, the source rogue planet, the lensing star, and the observer, need to be perfectly lined up for it to happen. And that's got to be more than a one in a trillion chance. If astronomers observed only one source star, they might need to wait a million, a billion, maybe even a trillion years in order to see that source acting as a microlens. So, modern surveys hunting for gravitational microlensing events instead monitor hundreds of millions of stars at the one time. And the best place to find that many stars in one field of view is towards the centre of the Milky Way. That's where the chances of finding a microlensing event would be highest. One of the largest and longest microwaving sky surveys, called OGLE, which is led by astronomers from the University of Warsaw, has now been operational for more than 28 years. Ogle astronomers use the 1.3-metre Warsaw Telescope located at the Las Campos Observatory in Chile. 
They're observing hundreds of millions of stars, searching for those which change their brightness. The duration of microlensing events depends on the mass of the lensing object. The less massive the lens, the shorter the microlensing event. Most of the observed microlensing events, which typically can last for several days, are caused by stars' microlensing events attributed to free-floating planets that have timescales of barely a few hours. And by measuring the duration of the microlensing event and the shape of its light curve, astronomers can estimate the mass of the lensing object. And this allowed scientists to announce the discovery of the shortest timescale microlensing event ever found, called OGLE 2016 BLG 1928, which lasted for just 42 minutes. When the authors first spotted this event, it was clear that it must have been something caused by an extremely tiny object, something far less massive than the Earth, probably only about the size of Mars. And because it only happened once, we know it wasn't an orbiting exoplanet, but rather a passing rogue planet. Ergel astronomers provided the first evidence for large-scale populations of rogue planets in the Milky Way. However, this newly detected rogue planet is by far the smallest rogue world ever found. Because of the brevity of the event, additional observations collected by the Korea Microlensing Telescope Network were needed to characterize the event. The network operates three telescopes, one in Chile, one in South Africa, and the third in Australia. This is Space Time. Still to come. Celebrating 20 years of continuous human presence on the International Space Station and Russia's new spy satellite cloaking technology. All that and more still to come on Space Time. The International Space Station's just celebrated 20 years of continuous human habitation in space. Some 241 people from 19 countries, including Australia, have visited the orbiting outpost, which has hosted more than 3,000 scientific research experiments. The 420-ton, 110-metre-long space station serves as a microgravity and space environment scientific research laboratory, undertaking experiments in biology, astronomy, meteorology, physics, metallurgy, medicine, material science, chemistry and earth sciences. It also carries out engineering experiments, testing equipment for future space systems and technology required for future long-duration missions to the Moon and Mars. The space station's first modules were launched back in 1998, with humans taking up permanent residence on November the 2nd in the year 2000. Before this, crews mostly spent brief periods in orbit on smaller space stations, lasting at most just a few months before returning to Earth. The exception was the former Soviet Union's Mir space station, which remained operational from 1986 to 2001 setting many records for continuous human habitation before finally being replaced by the International Space Station. The 130-ton Mir was eventually deorbited in March 2001 after a 15-year lifespan. While Moscow was building the Mir, the United States began planning its own space station called Freedom as a follow-up to the 1970s Skylab space station. But the huge cost of the proposed Freedom Space Station saw Washington and the then newly created Russian Federation, which arose out of the ashes of the collapse of the Soviet Union, agree to combine their efforts and develop a new joint space station with international partners. You see, not only could Russia no longer afford to develop its Mir-2 space station replacement for Mir, 
But Washington was concerned over the prospect of hundreds of highly trained Soviet-era nuclear physicists and rocket scientists suddenly unemployed and let loose on the world with skills eagerly sought by rogue nations such as the then infamous Axis of Evil, Iran, Iraq and North Korea. The project eventually developed to become the International Space Station, a multinational collaboration between NASA, the Russian Federal Space Agency at Oscosmos, the Japanese Aerospace Exploration Agency JAXA, the Canadian Space Agency and the European Space Agency ESA. It was originally called Space Station Alpha, but that quickly changed to the International Space Station or ISS following complaints by Russia who pointed out that they had already had a string of space stations in orbit, such as Salyut, Almaz and Mir, long before the ISS flew. The International Space Station was developed in orbit along similar lines to Mir, with fully completed individual modules flown up and connected in orbit. The last major pressurized module, Leonardo, was attached in 2011, and an experimental inflatable habitat was added in 2016. But development and assembly of the ISS continues, with two new Russian modules, the Naku Science Laboratory and the Precal Docking Node, slated for launch next year. The ISS is divided into two sections. There's the Russian orbital segment, operated by Moscow, and the United States orbital segment, which is shared by the rest. Roscosmos has endorsed continued operation of the Russian orbital segment through to at least 2024, after having previously proposed using elements of the segment to construct a new Russian space station. Meanwhile, the United States orbital segment is now expected to continue flying until at least 2030. This report on 20 years of continuous human occupation aboard the International Space Station comes from ESA TV. 20 years of International Space Station. One of the privileges that we have while living on orbit is to make the ordinary extraordinary. Even a dinner becomes a chance to go beyond any limitations and any heritage. I remember one dinner where we had my crewmate, uh, Jessica Mir, of, uh, uh, of Jewish heritage, um, enjoying Russian and Italian food together with the Russian colleagues, Americans, and Hazal Mansouri, who is the first United Arab Emirates astronaut. Uh, there are no limitations to what we can do when we want to do extraordinary things. Maybe the challenge for the next 20 years is let's do extraordinary things also on the ground. Hey, I'm ESA astronaut Alexander Gerst. And behind me here are the training mock-ups for the International Space Station at the European Astronaut Center in Cologne. And believe me, I've spent a lot of time in these mock-ups. And actually, I've spent even more time on the real International Space Station about one year. Uh, what might seem long to you is actually only 120th of the inhabited lifetime of ISS. That means if you're 40 years old or younger, more than half of your life a human has lived on the ISS uh, at any time. That's an amazing achievement. So if I could think of one property of this fantastic machine that I could pick out, then I would say the ISS is the most improbable machine that humanity has ever built. We all know uh, there's a lot of science going on and it's very important for us down here on Earth to get those science data, but we rarely look at what an achievement it was to actually build that machine. 
The modules were actually built on four different continents and were launched individually on rockets into orbit at 28,000 kilometers an hour, where they have been put together. And they had to fit with a precision more than a hundredth of a millimeter together, but they've never been tested on Earth if they fit together. That's how sure engineers were that this machine would work. That's what an achievement it was to put this machine together in space, working together across the globe. So you see from this fantastic achievement that international cooperation is the key. If you uh, try to do things alone, you can only get so far. If you work together with other countries, you can achieve things that one nation could never achieve alone. Plus, it forces you to work together in peace. So that's an achievement alone that I think is already worth the celebration of today. Happy birthday, ISS. So hey, as you know, uh, this year we celebrate 20 years of continuous human presence on the ISS, which is an unbelievable achievement. Um, I was lucky enough to be part of the last 10 years uh, of that story, that ongoing story. And to me, what's so special about the ISS uh, is its truly international nature, the international nature of that program. You got people from all over the globe working with the same ideals of space exploration, research, peaceful cooperation, and that makes it, to me, truly unique and special. So uh, congratulations of all the ISS partners on uh, 20 years of success on board the ISS, and here's to uh, an even better future of exploring farther together. Hello, I'm Tim Peake, and it's incredible to think that this year we're celebrating 20 years of international space station occupation. To my mind, the most incredible feat of human engineering the size of a football pitch, over 400 tons of hardware in low Earth orbit. But it was built as a scientific laboratory, and for that time it's been doing valuable research for the benefit of everybody back on Earth, such as investigations into new drugs, sustainable technology, solar power, renewables, crop growth and water regeneration. But more than that, it's about international collaboration. It couldn't be done by one nation alone, and it just goes to show what we can do when we work together. I had the privilege of living and working on the space station for six months, and it was the most incredible time of my life. I hope that many other astronauts in the future get that opportunity too. So good luck, whatever the future may hold. November 2nd is a special day, not just because it's my birthday, but also because this year it's the 20th anniversary of the first crew to move on board the International Space Station. 20 years later, the International Space Station is still providing us with uh, exciting new knowledge and new technology. Uh, I'll never forget my visit to the space station in 2015. One of the highlights was uh, sitting in Cupola, our window module, and filming uh, blue jets, uh, which are gigantic lightning strikes that shoot upwards, uh, out towards space from the top of thunderclouds. And this is a, an excellent example of new knowledge. Um, this is the first time blue jets were filmed and already it's given us uh, more insight into thunderstorms and how they impact uh, climate and weather on Earth. So here's to another 20 years of uh, living and working on board the space station in low Earth orbit. Hello, I'm Andre Kuipers, astronaut of the European Space Agency, and I went to the International Space Station twice, in 2004 and in 2012. When I birthed the first Dragon to the International Space Station, I realized I was doing something special. Here I was, a Dutch astronaut, from a European Space Agency, working with the Canadian robotic arm 
talking an American commercial spacecraft to an international space station. Beautiful example of all these technologies and countries came together. Also, when I docked the European ATV to the Russian side, working together with my Russian colleague. That is the most important thing for me for the International Space Station. It's built by all kinds of countries that were fighting each other not so long ago in hot and cold wars, and now building on the biggest technological project there is. A beautiful example how you can cooperate. For me, the International Space Station is a beautiful candidate for a Nobel Peace Prize. Welcome to the European Astronaut Center here in Cologne. The home base where more than 20 years now we are training astronauts for the International Space Station. So congratulations to all the partners that have made this wonderful project possible. For more than 20 years now we have humans living and working in space. And I was one of the lucky ones. I've been there twice. On my second mission I was there for six months and we are here in a mock-up of the Columbus module where I have spent six months doing science and working and living in space. Of course we did not only work, we also had memorable moments, for example when we celebrated Halloween on orbit and when we tried to dress up and tried to find uh, things that we could do just to surprise each other. These are also memorable moments, of course, but the most important thing is that for 20 years now, we have been delivering science, technology for the benefit of humankind. So again, the International Space Station, congratulations. Hi, my name is Christopher Gussain. I was an ESA astronaut and I'm a professor now at the KTH Royal Institute of Technology in Stockholm. And I'm here to say a few words about the fantastic International Space Station, who's now almost 20 years been continuously uh, crewed. I was actually part of the very first crew when they launched and went to the International Space Station in the year 2000. I was a support astronaut at the uh, Moscow um, Mission Control Center, ZUP, and I followed the, the Soyuz flight from launch to the docking to International Space Station, 1st of November, the year 2000, very closely. Some years later, in uh, December 2006, I got a wonderful opportunity to visit the International Space Station myself, and I took part in the assembly of the International Space Station, and then again in the 2000, uh, in 2009 two missions, SS-116 and 128. And it was absolutely fabulous to be part of doing this, to be part of building this most fabulous construction humans has built. Uh, I was happy and lucky to be able to do a few spacewalks and, and seeing the Earth floating below, in this case it was 360 kilometers below, while outside on the space station, that's an uh, absolutely unforgettable experience. We're building this International Space Station to learn how to build and live in space, but also to learn what we need to know to go further in space. And I'm sure ISS will be used many more years as well. And right now I want to congratulate everybody who has been involved in this fabulous endeavor to build and construct and live on the International Space Station. 
20 years, that's a long time. Congratulations. Hello, my name is Reinhold Ewald. As a European astronaut, I had the chance to fly to the Mir space station back in 1997. With that experience, I joined the teams on the ground preparing for the International Space Station. We were all set when in February 2008, Columbus lifted into orbit. And now Columbus is an integral part of the International Space Station. Good luck to all the astronauts, to the teams on the ground. Good journey and have a safe landing always. For me, these uh, 20 years uh, are more than just a, a point in history. For me, it's um, experience. For me, it's a special personal experience of what was happening the last 20 years. And if you allow me, there are two main aspects which I followed and which were very significant for me. One was the situation uh, when um, the Columbus module, the European Columbus module, was docked to the station. That was in 2008. Um, this was, for me, a very special moment. Uh, I was in, uh, in the U.S. at uh, Cape Canaveral, following first the launch and then, of course, following also the procedure to dock the uh, Columbus module. And the other thing was in 2014, which was, for me, even more impressive. And I'm still, when I give a talk about space, I always use that example. In 2014, there was a Crimea conflict between Ukraine and Russia. And everybody on Earth was talking about the sanctions vis-a-vis -vis Russia, etc., etc. And I got an invitation to go to a launch to um, Baikonur to send a European astronaut into space, to the International Space Station. And I came to Baikonur. I saw this, uh, two astronauts and one cosmonaut. So it was Reed Wiseman from NASA, it was Maxim Suraya from the Russians, and uh, it was a European astronaut with a German passport, uh, Alexander Gerst. And they were sitting together as if there is nothing, no, no sanctions, nothing. And they flew to the station, and without any visa problem, they can move, could move between the Russian and the American sector. And this was for me the feeling, yes, there is still some hope for the future that we can work together. So the ISS is for me really a symbol of what can be done by humanity. The International Space Station is really a shining example of how we can create a sustainable program, and we do it with international partnerships. And, and here we are 20 years, celebrating 20 years of keeping life off the Earth on the International Space Station. I think it's an amazing achievement. And in that special tribute to the grand old lady of orbit, we heard from ESA astronauts Luca Palatano, Alexander Gerst, Thomas Pasqua, Tim Peake, Andreas Morgensen, Andre Kuipers, Christoph Ugelsang, Frank DeWeen, Reinhold Wald, ESA's Director General Jan Werner, and NASA Administrator Jim Bridenstine. This is Space Time. Still to come, Russia's new spy satellite cloaking technology. And later in the science report, growing concerns that research on human brain stem cells could be reaching an ethical crossroads. All that and more coming up on Space Time. The Russian Federal Space Agency Roscosmos has patented a cloaking satellite designed to avoid inspector spacecraft. The new design reduces the visibility of military and spy satellites by allowing them to change the position of their solar panels, cutting down their reflectivity. 
The idea is if a foreign inspector satellite's detected approaching a spacecraft, it can hunker down into a cloak mode, making it harder to find and study. These so-called inspector satellites use LIDAR to find their targets, and then employ a range of surveillance instrumentation to image and probe their target spacecraft, collecting data on its technology to determine its capabilities, monitor its communications to retrieve data, and even placing eavesdropping and tracking equipment on it. The Roscosmos invention is designed to mask the spacecraft from these intruders until they move on. Of course, Russia knows what they're hiding from because, like the US and China, they also employ inspector satellites. In fact, Russia began using its current generation of inspector satellites in 2013 to study Western satellite technology in orbit. It's thought one of the first was the Cosmos 2499, which was monitored sneaking up on another spacecraft during what's thought to have been a proof-of-concept test flight. It's thought one of the first-ever inspector satellites was the 1,300-kilogram United States Prowler reconnaissance spacecraft, which was launched aboard the space shuttle Atlantis on the classified STS-38 mission in 1990. Prowler was designed to manoeuvre to within a few metres of target satellites to monitor their operations, return data on them and intercept their communications. Prowler was used to study Soviet spy satellites in geosynchronous orbit. It carried special modifications to reduce its visibility to ground-based observers and to radar. However, these modifications ceased to be effective once the Prowler was retired, allowing it to be found by amateur satellite watchers. This is Space Time. And time now to take a brief look at some of the other stories making news in science this week with a science report. Scientists say delaying the introduction of social distancing measures, failing to stick to them and ending measures early all cause COVID-19 case numbers to skyrocket. The authors developed a computer model to determine the effects of social distancing in three US regions and measured the effect of implementing the changes at different times and easing social distancing measures to different levels of adherence. A report in the journal Annals of Internal Medicine found New York could have slashed the numbers of infections it had by 80% had the city implemented social distancing just one week earlier than it did. But if New York had delayed the measures by a further week, scientists would have expected to see five times as many cases as occurred. The data also showed that face masking after distancing measures were eased also has a huge effect on cutting transmission of the virus. More than 1.3 million people have now been killed and almost 50 million infected by the COVID-19 coronavirus since it first began spreading out of China to the rest of the world a year ago. There are growing concerns that research on human brain stem cells could be reaching an ethical crossroads. Brain organoids, hundreds of miniature human brain stem cells in little clumps, each the size of a sesame seed and floating in a petri dish of nutrients, are sparking with electrical activity. Now, a report in the journal Nature warns that a handful of experiments are starting to raise questions about whether these organoids could become sentient. The big question is, how would scientists know if these neural networks have achieved consciousness? It's a cruel and horrific trade, and a new study shows Australia's become a major source for shark fins for soup. 
The unsustainable trade in shark fin soup depends heavily on coastal shark species dwelling in more easily protected territorial waters, including those off the coast of Australia. Using DNA barcoding of fins from global fish markets and maps of species distribution, researchers found the most likely source for much of the global shark fin market was concentrated within the exclusive economic zones off the coast of Australia, Indonesia, the United States, Brazil, Mexico and Japan. A report in the journal Biological Letters says there's now an urgent need for nations to adopt enforceable conservation measures within their jurisdictions, with more than half of the fins in this cruel trade coming from species already classified as either threatened or lacking sufficient data. Scientists have developed what they claim is a new type of lithium-ion battery for cars that can be charged up to 90% of their normal power output in just six minutes. The findings reported in the journal Energy and Environmental Science would remove the problem of slow charging times, one of the biggest barriers to the large-scale uptake of electric cars. Scientists say high power can be produced by lithium-ion batteries by reducing the particle size of the electrodes used. However, reducing particle size also decreases the energy density of the batteries. The authors showed that if an intermediate phase in the phase transition is formed during the charging and discharging, high power can be generated without losing high energy density. Audio problems with Apple's AirPods Pro, the new low-cost computer teaching kids how to code, and strong growth in the global tablet market. With details on these stories and more from the world of technology, here's Alex Zaharov-Royt from ity.com. AirPods are Apple's wireless Bluetooth headset and they were the one of the first ones that came onto the market if not the first that didn't have a connection between the two sides that go into your ears normally there's a cable that goes around and of course the original headphones had a, a headphone jack that went plugged into your device through their 3.5 millimeter socket but what set Apple apart was that it had separate headsets that were not connected and each side gave you five hours or thereabouts for listening to music and two or three hours of talk time and uh, Apple released version one version two and then they released the AirPods Pro now the AirPods Pro were different because they were the first ones with active noise cancelling and instead of having the tapping interface where you could double tap to activate Siri or answer a call or hang up you had to squeeze these ones they had a shorter stem and uh, you would squeeze to turn on noise cancellation or turn it off and to answer and hang up on calls and to, and to uh, talk to Siri and it was the length of the squeeze that determined what action you were taking. And the problem is that over the past few months, people complained that their AirPods were starting to have crackling noises or static sounds. And they also had this active noise cancellation that was stopping working in certain situations where you would have an increase in background noise such as street noise or airplane noise. And at first, people were sort of complaining and Apple wasn't saying anything about it. And often what Apple does is it sort of waits to see what sort of response there is or how many people are complaining about this certain problem. And then they'll, if the problem becomes big enough, they'll put out a statement saying that a very small percentage <laughs> or a small percentage, they say, of AirPods Pro may experience sound issues. And uh, they say that the affected units were manufactured before October 2020. So if there was a problem on the production line that was causing this to appear in some units, so they'll replace one or other of the AirPods. And they say that the case itself, the wireless charging case, is not affected. And um, you know, I actually purchased AirPods when they first launched last year. And within the two-week window, I had returned them because the little silicon tips, no matter which one I used, 
they hurt the bottom of my ear canal. It's called the antitragus. And I wrote a long article about it explaining why and explaining my disappointment because I really wanted to love these AirPods. And the previous two generations of AirPods, I could have them in my ear all day and not even know they were there. Tell me about this new low-cost method of teaching kids how to code. Now, that was something we learned at school. Sure. Well, Raspberry Pi is a low-cost computer built on an ARM processor that's gone through four generations. And each generation has improved the amount of RAM and improved the ARM processor. And the the most recent Raspberry Pi was the Raspberry Pi 4. Now, what the company has done is to come up with a Raspberry Pi 4 built into a keyboard. So that harks back to the old ZX Spectrum, BBC Micro, Commodore 64, Amiga days when you bought the keyboard and the keyboard was the computer. It had the disk drives or the connectors for tape drives and the plugs for the monitors. And you know, if, if possible, you would have the joystick or the mouse. And uh, this computer has returned. It's using a 64-bit quad-core processor. It's got four gig of RAM inside. It has a little SD socket, micro SD that you can load the operating system called Raspberry Pi OS, which is a flavor of Linux. It's got wireless networking, dual display HDMI because a lot of people nowadays use two monitors as well as a 40-pin general purpose I.O. port and uh, the unit itself comes with a mouse and in the States, this is $70. And so this computer is enough to run Minecraft, a whole stack of games, Google Chrome, Mozilla Firefox, a whole range of different word processing and the spreadsheet and other productivity programs. And it's being used not just by children, who many of whom I think will get it under the Christmas tree this year, but in schools, in offices, you know, it's actually a general purpose computer. I mean, this sort of low cost computer, which is $210 in Australia, has really blossomed. And in fact, we're even going to see a much more powerful, but still an ARM processor that's going to be powering Apple's new Apple Silicon Max. But uh, this is uh, hearkening back to those early days when we had a computer that was built into a keyboard. The costs have come down tremendously. You can run all the modern software on it. People are using it to automate their homes. But also it's designed for children to learn how to code. And there are various coding environments. And look, it's a great toy because it has the input-output socket as well on the back. You know, this is somewhere where we can, we can get children to start creating things again, not just be consumers of content and consumers of media, but to actually create stuff. It was Steve Woz, Wozniak, you know, one of the co- founders of Apple. The great was. The great was, yeah, who built his own computer. And, uh, you know, that that sort of thing, we haven't really seen that much in the modern era where everyone's just a consumer of content. So Raspberry Pi is... um just go to Raspberry Pi, like the number, raspberrypi.org, and you'll find out all about it. Tell us about the global tablet market. Tablet sales have always been quite strong. It's the Windows PC sales that have dipped in recent times, although, of course, this year with COVID, seeing a lot of computing technologies purchased and stores running out, growth in a lot of areas has been strong. But there was strong growth in the third quarter of 2020 for the global tablet market. Uh, Apple was at the top of the tree with 13.9 million shipments in the third quarter and a 29% market share. Samsung was in second spot with 9.4% and a 19.8% market share. Amazon, who also makes their own tablets, but they're not as popular as the others, have a 5.4% share. Huawei is 4.9%. Lenovo is 4.1%, and there are a bunch of others. But it's really Samsung and Apple that have the lion's share of the market, with Apple the biggest tablet seller of all. And that's because on iPad OS, the developers are using pretty much every pixel on the iPad screen to deliver apps that are optimized for the tablet experience. On Android tablets, normally the apps are stretched out phone apps because they just aren't as many Android tablets sold. And uh, you know, personally, I've had a chance to play with both Apple's eighth generation iPad, which is 329 in the US starting price and 499 in Australia. And 
it's a big upgrade over the previous generation because it has a much faster processor, a six-core processor, the A12, rather than the two-core processor, the A10 from last year. Uh, over the last two years, it's got the biggest screen, 10.2 inches. And you don't have to worry about antivirus or you don't have to worry about ransomware or dodgy apps inside of the App Store. It uh, is, a, is a very safe system and it can help people with content creation or content consumption. And you can now use a keyboard and a mouse and a trackpad with all of the different iPads. So it's not surprising to see that these sort of much easier to maintain devices from both Android, but especially from iOS, have become a real alternative to buying a traditional Windows PC or even a Mac. It's certainly the case that on iPad OS and on iPhone OS, you get the vast bulk of new app development. You don't see too many new apps for Windows PCs anymore, and often everything is done through a browser. But on iPads and on Android phones, you see a lot of apps, a lot of the development is there. So the tablets, uh, tablet market has seen a strong growth, and with the new tablets, including the iPad Air 2020, which I've also had a chance to review, which is like an iPad iPad Pro, but less cost and a few little features taken out, but still very cool. I think there's going to be even stronger growth in the Christmas period that is set to come. That's Alex Saharov Royt from ity.com. And that's the show for now. Spacetime is available every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday through Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Spotify, Acast, Amazon Music, Bytes.com, SoundCloud, YouTube, your favorite podcast download provider, and from Spacetime with StuartGary.com. Spacetime's also broadcast through the National Science Foundation on Science Zone Radio and on both iHeartRadio and TuneIn Radio. And you can help to support our show by visiting the Spacetime store for a range of promotional merchandising goodies. Or by becoming a Spacetime patron, which gives you access to triple episode commercial free versions of the show, as well as lots of bonus audio content which doesn't go to air, access to our exclusive Facebook group and other rewards. Just go to SpacetimeWithStuartGary.com for full details. And if you want more space time, please check out our blog where you'll find all the stuff we couldn't fit in the show, as well as heaps of images, news stories, loads of videos, and things on the web I find interesting or amusing. Just go to spacetimewithstuartgary.tumblr.com. That's all one word, and that's Tumblr without the E. You can also follow us through at StuartGary on Twitter, at SpacetimeWithStuartGary on Instagram, through our Spacetime YouTube channel. And on Facebook, just go to facebook.com forward slash Spacetime with Stuart Gary. And Spacetime is brought to you in collaboration with Australian Sky and Telescope magazine, your window on the universe. You've been listening to Spacetime with Stuart Gary. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com. 